When I was around seven or eight, my parents woke me up in the middle of the night because the house next to ours was on fire. And I'm not sure what the distance was between our house and that house, maybe 50 to 100 feet, maybe a little more. But the concern, I think, was that these flames would not be satisfied with devouring only one house, but would also desire to devour our house as well. I think that's a helpful metaphor to think about our topic this morning. This morning, we continue our series on spiritual warfare, and we are looking at the devil's destroying plan. The devil aims to destroy God's good creation through any means possible. He is seeking to devour and destroy. We're going to break from our typical pattern today, and I don't really like doing it this way, but we sort of have to with this, the way way this sermon's going to be structured. I'm not going to work through a single passage of Scripture as usual. Again, I think that's ideal. I think that's what we should be doing. But instead, today, what we're going to do is we're going to construct a picture from several places in Scripture. So we're going to jump around a little. We're not going to look at just a paragraph and say, here's what we can learn. But, but we're going to try to construct a picture from all of Scripture about how the devil seeks to destroy God's good creation. Now I want to begin in Genesis 3 uh, again. And by now you know the story because in every single part of this four-part series, we're beginning in Genesis 3. The serpent lies, deceives, and corrupts God's good creation. That's, so that's, that's the parts we've seen so far. He lies and he deceives, and now today we're going to see that he corrupts God's good creation. Look at the results in, in these uh, just a few verses here toward the latter half of Genesis 3. Genesis 3.16, To the woman the Lord God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The serpent's efforts result in increased pain in childbearing. Something good and beautiful and life-giving is now difficult and painful. Also, rather than the harmony we see between man and woman at the end of Genesis 2, now we have tension between them. Again, something good and beautiful and life-giving, that marriage relationship, that helping relationship, that it is not good for man to be alone relationship is now difficult and painful. Now look at verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The result of the serpent's temptation is the corruption of creation. The ground is cursed. In pain you shall eat. The Hebrew word for pain 
by the way, is repeated from verse 16. In pain, uh, you, you will bring forth children. Now it's in pain, you will bring forth fruit from the ground. And the ground will produce thorns and thistles, things that make it difficult, things that destroy life. Again, something good and beautiful and life-giving is now difficult and painful. Sweat and toil and labor are required. Now we'll come back to the end of Genesis 3 toward the end of our time. But for now, let's continue to trace this story as we see the corruption of creation from Genesis 3 going into Genesis 4. And by the way, we see this story all throughout Scripture because Scripture is telling us, look at the world, it is broken. In Genesis 4, Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel. Cain is a farmer and Abel is a shepherd. Cain shows little devotion to the Lord. And the Lord speaks to him in Genesis 4, 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. I just want you to notice how sin is this force that has a desire to destroy. And that's precisely what happens in the following verses. Cain and Abel are in the field, and Cain kills his brother. What's fascinating is the Lord's response to Cain in verses 11 and 12. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. So again, the ground is cursed as it is soaked with the blood of a life destroyed. Now, I do need to clarify something. So far, human sin, stemming from the serpent's temptation, has resulted in curses on creation. These curses have been given by God. And so it it seems that God is subjecting creation to this curse. And in fact, that would echo what Paul appears to say and mean in Romans 8. And this continues into Genesis 6. God looks at humankind and he sees great evil. He determines to judge his creation. You know the story from there. The flood comes. Noah and his family are spared. When the waters subside... Genesis 8.21 says, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And I point all of this out to you to show you that sin corrupts God's good creation. And however we want to understand this, even in God's judgment, even in his cursing of creation, which is the result of sin. It's not something that God is doing. He's not malevolent. He's not evil. He's not wicked. He is responding to wickedness and to evil. But even in his judgment, his restraint is a demonstration of his grace. We'll see more of his grace in a few minutes, but for now we have to ask, where does the devil fit into this? What we can say is the devil is the catalyst for the corruption of creation. And as we observe the story of Scripture, we see the devil's continued efforts to destroy creation. 
Before we look at four specific examples, listen to what Jesus says in two verses in John. In John 8, 44, Jesus says to the religious leaders, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. So Jesus characterizes the devil as a murderer. What do murderers do? They destroy God's creation. The whole issue with murder, according to Genesis 9, is that these are people who bear God's image. So it is an affront to God himself. In the same way, Jesus says in John 10.10 that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. That is a description of the devil's work. Let me show you four examples. First, we can go back to Cain killing Abel. First John three twelve says Cain was of the evil one. In other words, that murder was motivated by the devil. Cain's hatred for another human being is evidence of the devil's work. So the devil can motivate human hatred. The opposite of love. That is what the devil does. Second, the Old Testament has numerous examples of children being sacrificed to pagan gods. Now, the notion of child sacrifice is roundly rejected by the God of the Bible. For example, Jeremiah 23, or excuse me, Jeremiah 32, 35 says, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Henan to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Psalm 106 verse 37 understands these sacrifices as given to demons. So these false gods are demons. We all know that the destruction of children is a great evil. And it is part of the devil's destroying plan. To destroy children who are vulnerable is part of the devil's destructive plan. Third, the exorcism stories in the New Testament are especially illuminating when it comes to what the devil is trying to accomplish. In Mark 5, Jesus meets a man with many demons. This man lives in the tombs and scripture says he cuts himself with stones. Self-harm is part of the devil's destroying plan. When the demons see Jesus, they beg to be cast into a herd of pigs. And when Jesus permits this, the demons enter the pigs, and immediately the pigs rush off a cliff into the water, and 2,000 pigs drown. So we have the destruction of creation even there. Destruction of economic viability. There, there is destruction happening. Another one is Mark 9. Jesus' disciples are unable to cast out a demon in a young man. Jesus asked the father how long this has been happening to his son. The father says, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. To destroy him. By the way, the same word, same word in, in Greek here that John used in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
So the demon's desire is to destroy life. Finally, there is the devil's desire to destroy the church. John has a vision in Revelation 12 of a great red dragon knocking down a third of the stars with his tail. Then he pursues a pregnant woman, John says, in order to devour her child. After this, a cosmic war breaks out. The dragon is thrown down to earth, and John says he comes down to the earth in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He continues his pursuit of the woman. In Revelation 12, 17, we read, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Obviously, this passage is difficult and interpreters make different suggestions. Some see this as a future event. Others, like myself, are inclined to take this as a description of the past and in some ways the present. But the principle is the same. The devil wants to destroy God's people, the church. This is precisely what Peter says in 1 Peter 5. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it should be apparent that the devil desires to destroy God's creation. He can do this through direct intervention, as in the case of demon possessions, or he can do it through coercion, as in the case of Cain, or through deception, as in the child sacrifices to pagan gods, or through suffering, as in the persecution of the church. But in spite of all of this effort on the devil's part, God's grace will overcome. Let me take you back to Genesis 3. Judgment has just happened. Creation has been corrupted. God has pronounced or at least spoken these curses upon creation. But in God's grace, He clothes Adam and Eve. Then in verse 22, He says, Behold, humankind has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, they, now lest they reach out their hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Then we read, Therefore the Lord God sent them out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which they were taken. He drove out the humans, and as the east of the garden... Uh, of Edom, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you see what God's doing? He's saying, Look, they might get to this tree of life, and in their corrupt state, that would be absolutely terrible. And so, what he does is he casts them out. He, he keeps them from being able to come to the tree of life. And, and, and He keeps them out of the garden. And so even death is part of God's grace. Eating from the tree of life and living forever would result in continued corruption. So the Lord expelled humans from the garden. And in His good grace, He protected them by ensuring that they could not come back in. We tend to think of death as a tool of the devil, and certainly in some sense it is. But God is sovereign over death. Death is a necessity on the road to redemption. God intends to redeem His good creation from corruption. The devil may have successfully introduced chaos 
through his destroying plan, but it is the Lord who is the real consuming fire. He will not rest. He will not sleep until he has rested his creation back from the devil's hands. And so the devil may use death as a tool, but even God's grace overcomes death. And this is exactly what God is doing through Christ. Listen to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So God takes on flesh in order to destroy the devil and his destructive agenda to free us from death. And here we have the great contrast between the devil and Jesus. Jesus says in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan has this picture of a wall burning in a room. But there is a man who is constantly dumping buckets of water on the wall, trying to put out the fire. And in spite of his efforts, the fire continues to burn. And when Bunyan goes around to the other side of the wall, he shows that there is a man pouring oil on the fire. And he says that this is a picture of the devil who tries to extinguish the fire of the heart. But the one with oil is, quote, Christ who continually with the oil of His grace maintains the work already begun in the heart. And so the devil seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, but Christ knows who are His and He will not lose them. He who began a good work in you will complete it. How does Jesus keep those who are His? He lays down His life. Other shepherds might flee when the wolf comes, but not Jesus. He dies to dismantle the devil's destructive plan. Luther describes what Jesus accomplishes this way. Christ has redeemed me from sin, from the devil, from death, and all evil. For before I had no Lord nor King, captive under the power of the devil. I was condemned to death and entangled in sin and blindness. The devil came and led us into disobedience, sin, death, and all misfortune. As a result, we lay under God's wrath and displeasure, sentenced to eternal damnation as we had merited it and deserved it. There were no resources, no help, no comfort for us until this only and eternal Son of God in His unfathomable goodness had mercy on us because of our misery and distress and came from heaven to help us. Those tyrants and jailers have now been routed and their place has been taken by Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, righteousness, and every good thing and every blessing, He has snatched us, poor lost creatures, from the jaws of hell, won us, made us free, and restored us to the Father's favor and grace. As His own possession, He has taken us under His protection and shelter in order that He may rule us 
by His righteousness, wisdom, power, life, and blessedness. Look at the preciousness of Christ's sacrifice. He has opened the door to life. He frees us from slavery and bondage. He pays for the sin that keeps us in the pit of destruction. He satisfies the demands of the law so that our guilt is gone. He defeats the evil one. He rises again to offer us new life. A life incorruptible, imperishable, and immortal. It is not susceptible to the destructive agenda of the devil. How could we speak lightly of the gospel when we understand it? How could we find this boring or anything less than breathtaking? My encouragement to you is to look upon Christ who died to set you free from the destruction of the devil. Behold the kindness of God who is determined to redeem His creation from corruption. Think upon, meditate on His kindness to us.